right. Um, so as you notice on our slide, we just started our sermon series called Shine last week. And it is on purpose that there's an exclamation mark after that. So it's not shine, not go shine. It's shine. Okay, let's practice together. Ready? One, two, three. It's like in an exclamation mark, there's emphasis, there's a command to that. And that's what we're going to look at through the uh, book of First Peter, how Peter, he himself was an instrument of light. And through Peter, God called us to be light. Uh, we'll dive into a many, a many different um, truth and reality about that. But today, we're going to continue on. We preached from very long verse last week, just First Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. We're going to go a little faster today. We're going to go 3 through 12, as Hannah uh, just read for us. Uh, I came across this website. Uh, uh, about 24 things that most of you will have no idea what the purpose is for. So I want to show you a picture. Can you go next? So most of you know, if you use a ballpoint pen, there's a hole at the end. Does anyone know what it's that for? No. So most of us think that that is to keep the you know, flow of the pen so it won't clutter up the, the ballpoint in the beginning. But what it really is for is uh, it prevents kids from choking. Because some of you guys probably do that. You have a cap. You don't know what to do. You put it in your mouth. And what they found is that a lot of times kids swallow that. And so with a the hole there, they give them a lot more time to get it out in the hospital before they suffocate with that cap. All right, next one. Most of us have jeans, and you have that little hole. Most of us probably have no idea what it's for. That pocket actually is for a clock, a watch. Not a clock, a watch. It's for people back then actually have watches that is not on their wrist. I don't know why anyone even wa wear a watch anymore. But back then they clip it on their belt and they put it in that little pocket. It is not a style thing to go to jeans and just have an extra small pocket. And I don't know if you ever put anything in there aside from collecting dust. All right, next one. This one is extremely helpful. Most of us who drive have no idea this, this is there. We just see that gas thing. But what you notice is there's a little arrow right there. That arrow actually tells you which side of your gas uh, uh, tank is. So you go, when, those of you who drive, when you drive to the, if you're like me for the longest time, I drove up, I'm always asking my wife or trying to remember, is my gas tank on the left or on the right? Once I found out that this arrow essentially tells you if it's on the right, uh, this on the left side, your gas tank is on the left, so you don't have to be that annoying person just drive on the wrong side and pull that long cord, and everyone's looking at you like, man, that person has no idea about their car, and they fill up that tank and they hold that hose there while filling up. Very useful tip. Most of you have no idea about that. Okay, next one. I think I have two more. Okay, eraser. Uh, if you even use eraser, most people think that the blue part is to erase pen. At least that's how I grew up, and people keep telling, oh, the red part for pencil, blue part for pen. But if you try to use the blue part on pen on a paper, you know what's going to happen? It'll rip the paper. The blue part actually is not for pen. The blue part is actually for uh, those of you who draw, you know that there are different number of pencil. Most of us use number two pencil, but a lighter color pencil, that blue part is supposed to erase on a thicker paper. So that it won't, so it will be able to erase that lighter color pencil without ripping the pages. I think I have one more. Let's see. There, there you go. Okay. Uh, most of you are underage, so you probably don't take that. Uh, this is a wine bottle. Uh, you ever wonder there's a wine bottle at the bottom, there's a hole. Have you ever wondered why was that for? I'm glad you asked because I know the answer. That is actually for a uh, wine bottle not easily being tipped over. It's meant for balance. So because of the hole there, most of the glass bottle, uh, if you don't know, wine can be very expensive. 
So if you break a bottle of wine, it can cost you some up to $1,000. And so they designed the wine bottle to have this hole at the bottom, so it will be very, very stable. I think that's it. That's all I have. Um, hopefully some fun facts. If you don't learn anything else today, you learn what these are for. But uh, I, I share this for you uh, for a reason because I realize that a lot of times we have things in our lives that we have no idea what it's for. Like we have things in our, our cars, we have things in our pocket, we have things in, that we're wearing that we're not fully aware of the functionality, that we miss out on the potential of what that object is for, the purpose of our lives. Sometimes we miss out, we know that we have salvation, we have eternal life, but for many of us, there is a hole in our salvation that we don't realize the extent, the potential, that salvation that we have received from Christ can be for something more. And just like these items that are very small and sometimes very easily forgotten, we have forgotten something about our salvation. As I introduced earlier that we started a series called Shine, and that's why my light is here, to remind us that we're supposed to shine. A lot of times our first question is, how do I shine for Jesus? And I believe that's actually the wrong question to ask. You see, we can always teach you how to shine, but the question that we better ask is what? Is fueling us to shine. Someone in our home group made a really good observation. Last week, I turned the room light off completely, pitch black in here. I asked a few people with a candle. Someone in our home group brought up this question and said, what would happen if the candle stopped having any fuel to burn? Well, we all know the answer. The light would go out. Right? Unless there is fuel, and for this, unless there is electricity, do we need a fuel to burn uh, to continue to cause our light to burn? And that's the question that Peter is going to answer for us as he calls us to shine in chapter 2 later. He's going to remind us of something much more important, that what is fueling our lives to shine? We cannot learn how to shine unless we know what do we have to shine. That's what Peter is going to bring us to today in First Peter chapter 1. Verse 3 to 12. If you have your Bible with you, please turn there. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Here's what it says. I want to start from the beginning. Peter is going to bring us to the focus of not telling us to shine, but it's telling us to focus on something much more important. Kind of like the hidden thing that sometimes we forget the, the things we saw earlier. Here's what it says. I want to read verse 3 for us. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Stop. I realize when we read that verse, if you're any way like me, when we read that verse, we just skip over this. It's one of, it's like a filler, it's like something that, almost a Christian thing to say, oh, bless God, and bless God the Father, and bless uh, Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ. We can easily skip over that. But the reason I want to ask you to pause there is because this sentence is actually more than just what meets the eye. This is actually a sentence of praise. This is a sentence of worship. This is a sentence of all. I don't know if you follow sports. I do. I'm very, uh, I'm really into sports. This week, one of the biggest, uh, the most trending video or tweet that came out was this guy named Aaron Judge. He's a baseball player for the New York Yankees. He's 6'9". I think he's like super jacked and like he looks like a, a Greek god. He hits home run like there's nothing. And what he did is I want to show us a video and what he did to come some kids. Take a look.
Small thing, 12 seconds. Did you notice what happened to the girl and the boy? For most of you, you're like, well, that's no big deal, Aaron Judge. I don't know him. I don't care about him. These two care a lot about Aaron Judge. This before the game. Aaron Judge usually take batting practice before the game. And at the end of the game, you realize these two little fans that were there literally idolized him. So you know what he did? He gave away his batting gloves and the bat that he was using and give it to the kids. And did you see what happened to that girl? She cried. Where did she cry? She was on her knees. And the guy could, the boy could not contain himself that they actually get the bat from Aaron Judge and the gloves from Aaron Judge. He brought that girl to her knees. That is the, the, the sentiment that Peter has when he said, Blessed be God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were on your knees overwhelmed by God's salvation in your life? When was the last time you are on your knees and cried that God saved me? Man, this girl was crying over a man who makes millions of dollars giving up bath that he probably didn't buy himself. But this girl and this boy loved this guy so much, idolized this guy so much that they were brought to their knees and started crying. So how can I deserve this bat? How can I deserve this glove? Let me ask you again, when's the last time you were overwhelmed by God that way? See, when Peter wrote this letter, he, the first thing he said after he introduced a greeting and all this, the first thing he says is this, Blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Peter have such strong sentiments and strong wor- sense of worship and all? Because to continue to read is because of his, our salvation in Christ. Let's continue to read verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why was he exploding with praise? Why? I could just imagine Peter would probably just like that girl was just writing these letters and crying. And saying, I'm an undeserving man. Why? Because of this. He says this. According to his great mercy. According to God's great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There are three realities that Peter uh, show us to kind of follow up with that sense of awe and worship. Three aspects of our salvation that oftentimes we forget. The first aspect, he shows us the reason that caused him for such great worship and all is because the first thing is this. There is a future aspect of his salvation that he he is convinced of. That the first reality we see from, our, from his salvation is that the salvation gives him and gives us a living hope in the future. That the salvation that you and I read, when we put our faith in Jesus, this salvation gives us a living hope down the road in the future when Jesus comes back again. Look at the verse again. It says this, according to his great mercy, we're not deserving it of it. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the salvation that you and I received from Christ, it was not a false hope. It was not a dead hope. It was not a wishful hope. We know that because the hope that we get from Jesus is living hope is because Jesus himself is living. The resurrection of Christ, Jesus did not just die on the cross and stay dead, but he was raised from the dead three days later. Just like what we sang earlier in the song, then came the morning. And see, they seal the promise. 
your very body began to breathe. Out of silence, the roaring lion declared the grave has no claim on me. You see, many times when we think of salvation, we're thinking now. So when we, for many of us, when we feel safe, we're saved by grace through faith, we have eternal life, we're still thinking just now. See, Peter realized that that salvation that God has given him is not just for now, it's for the future. That there is something to look forward to. There's something greater than to look forward to. But for many of us, we just want a salvation that works today. I just want a salvation that kind of makes my life better today. Without realizing that God has given us a living hope in the future. And the way he describes this this living hope is far greater than what we can see in this world. Because you continue in verse 4, that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, where this living hope is to an inheritance that is marked by four things. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You and I as believers, we have an inheritance, not in this world, but in the world to come. That inheritance that we have, it says, is imperishable. That means that it cannot die. It can never be over. It cannot. It will last forever. Unlike the phone that you have, one day it will die. One day you will want to upgrade that phone. But the inheritance that we have with God forever in heaven will never die. It is undefiled because it cannot spoil. Like think of the best meal that you ever had. While it was good at the time, you know what's really annoying is that you don't get to keep that meal forever. You can't freeze it forever. You can't quick freeze it and be able to eat it 10 years from now. It will spoil. Even if it doesn't spoil, it will not taste as good as one you have experienced before. But the inheritance that we have from God will never, ever defile. will never get dirty. will never get spoiled. It will be as good as it will ever come. And it will be better than the things that we've ever tasted in this world. Lastly, it is unfading. It cannot disappear. It cannot get old. You know, the people that we love the most one day, Unfortunately, they will die. The closest to friends that we have, sometimes they will move somewhere else and we will lose, uh, uh, lose contact with them. But the inheritance that we have in Christ, it says, is unfading. It is unlike the big TV that you got, that one day you want a bigger TV. It is unlike the game system that you bought, that one day you want to switch to another better system. It will be unlike any cars that you ever buy. That it, will be a, that it will be a better version of it. The things that God has preserved, kept for us in heaven, will be there forever. It will be the best for us. It will never be fading away. And lastly, he says, kept for us. It means it will be absolutely safe. You cannot lose it. Reading this verse reminds me a lot about my kids. One of our son's birthdays coming up. And what we do with our kids is this. We ask them or we give them an opportunity to put stuff on their Amazon list of things that they want. But with the caveat that they don't always get what they want. We put on a list, and then generally our family members always ask, oh, what can we get for the boys? And we say, okay, look at the list. Uh, choose from there and buy there. Um, so what happens is every time our kids put a lot of stuff on the list, they'll get most of it. And they'll be really excited until the day they get it. On their birthday, they open it and say, yay, it's so good. You know what, that, what, what happens after that, though, is they'll play for a few weeks, sometime months, and then you know what happens? Either it will break, they'll get tired of it, 
or somehow it just ended up in a pile of toys with all the other birthdays, Christmas, uh, any celebration of toys that you've ever been to our house. There is a exclusive corners of toys that they most most times they don't play anymore. When I read this verse, I think of the inheritance that I will have in heaven. The living hope that Jesus promises through his resurrection, that will not be something that I will play a few times and get rid of. It will be the best thing that I've ever tasted, the best thing that I've ever experienced, and it will be kept for me to be experiencing that forever. And that's what God has promised. That's the salvation that Peter was so excited about that he would be crying and he saying, bless God that I get to experience this because I do not deserve of that. And that future aspect is what draw Peter to say, praise God, bless his name, because I get something to look forward to. But here's the problem for many of us. We are blinded to that living hope a lot of times, don't we? We're blinded because many times we are so focused on today. Today's problems, today's troubles, today's trials blinds us from looking forward to that living hope. Sometimes the problem we see in front of us right today is blocking us from seeing the future that was guaranteed for us. And that's why Peter went on to tell us that there is something that our salvation has to do with today. Particularly for many of us, the trials, the trouble, the burden that we experience on a day-to-day basis in this world. Which leads us to the second thing. Not only the, the salvation brings us to the future, but the salvation has something to do with today. Here's what it has to do. The second reality we see in our salvation in today is that, that our today's trials, the present trials we face today, can help deepen our assurance of salvation. Peter said that your trials are real. Your trials, your suffering, your burden today, they are not a figment of imagination. It happens to every one of us, Christian or non-Christian, just because we're Christian. It does not exclude us from trials. In fact, it might bring even more trials and suffering in your life. But yet the salvation that we receive from Christ actually helps us to experience it, uh, to go through them with much joy and with much praise. Peter kind of reminds us this in verse 6. We continue to read in verse 6. After he talked about all the future things that are guaranteed to us that we will have one day, he went on to the reality, talk, talking to people that, uh, that what they're going through today in their lives. Verse 6 says this, in this, you greatly re- uh, in this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Let me stop just right there. Peter is not naive like many of us Christians. Peter said there will be time that there will be trials in your life. In fact, those trials are not meant to be like, oh, I feel so good that I have trials. It is something to cause grief. It hurts. And when Peter was writing to the people here, he's not writing to some hypothetical situation. The people he was writing to was experiencing persecution and trials by an emperor named Nero. At the time, it was not a statewide persecution, like an all-country persecution, but persecution started happening. Nero set on fire Jerusalem, set Jerusalem on fire because he just didn't like Christians. In fact, he set it on fire and blamed it on the Christians. There were accounts of Christians being dipped in tar and then bound on a pole and being lit up on fire. 
as an example to show the people in the Roman Empire that these Christians are no good and they're no power against me as the emperor. These are the people that Peter was writing to and said, see, just because they're Christians, there are going to be trials. There are going to be suffering that will cause grief if necessary. I realize that not all of us get dipped in the tar and get burned. But here's the reality. As Christians, we do face, maybe in a lesser way, burdens and trials in our lives. Lesser way does not mean that we minimize those things and pretend everything is good. Come to church, oh, and I have no problem in life. As a Christian, sometimes you get judged. I don't know if you ever heard, if you heard uh, last two weeks in Duke University, North Carolina, one of the Christian groups were not allowed to meet any longer because of their belief in the Bible about marriage. So they got kicked out on campus. They cannot meet as Christians. Some of us at work, perhaps you speak, you stand up to the truth. You try to live your life as Christ-like as possible, and yet you, 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 you're coming under pressure by your boss, by your coworkers. You didn't succumb, and because of that, you didn't get a chance to get promoted. Because of that, you are alienated by your coworkers. Some of you who are younger, you're at home, maybe your family are not Christians. And you got made fun of because you are a Christian. You said that, I believe in Jesus. And they wonder, like, you're so young, how, what, what kind of things do you know? But you hold on to your faith, and then they, 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 they just say, oh, I'll give you a couple years. You just walk away the faith just like every other person that I know. You see, we all come under burden, trials, and even to some persecution. But, there, but many times when we think of persecution, we think very negatively. It's like, oh, persecution must be bad. We must have done something wrong. And sometimes we have a wrong theology in thinking that I must have some, some, done something wrong, sin against God, and now God is punishing me. Therefore, I'm suffering. Therefore, I'm going through trials because God uh, was trying to correct me and punish me. But here's listen to what Peter said. Peter is going to give us the reason why sometimes trials happen. is not necessarily because you have done something wrong and you, you upset God and God was trying to punish you. Because in verse 7, is, here's what it says. The word so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes through, uh, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus. The word, the phrase so that tells us the reason. You know what's the reason for trials? What's the reason for suffering? What's the reason for the difficulties in life? Peter tells us the reason is to test us. The reason is to test whether your faith is real. How genuine your faith really is in the the point of suffering is not to make you suffer on, on, as as the end goal. Suffering and trials meant to reveal to us the picture of Peter painted over here is really clear. It's like gold. The way gold is being purified and make it really genuine gold is to apply heat to it. You burn it. Impurity service up, you skim it, you burn it again. Impurity service up, you skim it again. That's the only way to, buy, to get gold that's super pure. Imagine you're paying for a gold. They, they promise you to be a certain purity, and then you pay it, and then it's not. The only way to get pure gold is to put fire into it. And that's what comes sometimes for us as Christians. And increasingly in today's world, where the world is not so favorable to Christians, to, to any religion by, for that matter, we will continue to experience persecution, being judged. People will misunderstand us. 
and they may come in the form of persecution and trials. And my question to you is, how are you going to respond to that? Because your response to it will show the genuineness of your faith. That's what it is about. That's what trials is about. And there are two responses, right? There's one response is this, that we can have trials in our lives and we chose not to have faith in Christ. We can show that, well, maybe this is too much for me. And it will show that our faith is not real. I mean, think about this. How hard is it for someone to show up on Sunday? Just sit through the service, sing a few songs, go home. Don't cuss. Don't say anything bad. Be quiet. Most of your Sunday school teacher, even the pastor, would think you're okay. But here's the question. When someone is being mean to you, if someone is calling you names when you insist that you are holding on to your Christian belief, if at their job someone said you cannot be promoted because you are a Christian, if someone actually challenge your faith, will you continue to stand by Jesus? Will you continue to have faith in Jesus? So if your, your response is, oh, that's too hard for me, then what it does is it does show that your faith is not real. But the other response is, is that you can continue to put your faith in Jesus. I want you to bring, back, bring you back to early Friday morning. Early Friday morning over 2,000 years ago, before the rooster crowed. The author of this book, Peter, the great apostle Peter, who wrote two books in the Bible. You know the story well. Peter denied Jesus three times. As he denied Jesus three times, the, the rooster crowed. I wonder how he felt. Because for the rest of that day, he saw Jesus on that cross being crucified, being mocked, being made fun of, physical in, uh, uh, affliction. I wonder that night when he saw Jesus finally passed away and died. Could Peter have slept? Then fast forward to the next morning on Saturday. And I can just imagine Peter was just feeling guilty, ashamed, wondering what just happened. My, the, my best friend, my mentor, my teacher, the one who promised that I'll be doing well in life, the, the one who protected me, now is gone. The one who promised eternal life, he himself is gone. I wonder what came through uh, uh, Peter's mind. Like, should I just go back to what I believe and pretend the last three years with this Jesus guy was a, was a nightmare? Which is a pipe dream? Or would I continue to believe that somehow, somewhere, God will work this out? I think for many of us, we're living on that Saturday of life. It's uncomfortable to be on the Saturdays of life. On Saturdays of life, you wonder, God, are you there? On Saturdays of life, you wonder, God, I followed you. How come my life didn't turn out the way it is? How come you, you, you're not fulfilling what you, I thought you promised me? On Saturdays of life, those are painful moments that sometimes you feel like letting go and pretending that what you believed before doesn't matter. It's not real anymore. But I wonder for Peter next day what he, when he heard what happened on Sunday, 
when the two women came and knocked on his door and said, Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. He's been raised from the dead. I wonder what came across Peter's emotion and his mind and his heart. That as he held on to that little faith that he has, he, said, he believed that somehow God will work through. And in, in fact, on Sunday, God did raise Jesus from the dead. So here's my encouragement for you. If you are living in the Saturdays of life today, in this season of your life, the Bible tells us and we know that Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's been resurrected. Sunday does come. Sunday will come because Sunday had already come once. And as we live in that Saturday, I want to encourage you, be, as you're being tested, whether your faith is genuine, hold on, cling on to Jesus on those Saturdays. Because believe it, that Sunday will come. Jesus has already been raised from the dead. There will be another Sunday that Jesus will come back. All the future things that Peter talked about in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6, that is something to be worthy of put our faith in. Jesus done it once, and he will do it again. And here's the crazy thing, because when you start putting faith in start trusting that on Saturdays, what it does is your, your faith on Saturdays will help you to be assured that Sunday you belong to Sunday. That you will have assurance that you are really part of the kingdom of God. A lot of people always ask, how do I know that my faith is real? How do I know that I'm really a Christian? I can't see God. In fact, Peter said it this way. In verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How do you know you're a Christian? How do you know that your faith is real? The only way to know is for you to keep applying that faith, continue to exercise that faith. Peter said you can't see God at first, but you chose to love him. You put your faith in him. You can't see him. You can't feel him, but yet you continue to apply that faith. Same thing happens on Saturdays of life. The only way for you to really trust God is actually not from yourself. The only way for you to get faith to trust Jesus is actually from God. So if you find yourself, I'm going to choose to, to, to continue trusting Jesus. In fact, it says it's inexpressible. There's no good reason why any sane person will keep believing in Jesus in their Saturdays of life. And the only explanation for that is because there is a real God that you believe in no matter what you're going through. And every time when you're being tested, you're applying, taking steps of faith, taking steps of faith, taking steps of faith. And when you look back, you realize that faith is real. You know how people define insanity? He's doing the same thing over and over again and expect what? A different result. See, the only way for you to be able to walk with faith is because your faith has been preserved by God. It's been given by God. That's why it says that you can obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. Unless you really confess Jesus as Lord, you will not have that faith to continue to trust in Jesus. Though your faith might be weak, though you may stumble, but your faith is there to trust in Jesus in those Saturdays of life. It actually shows you deep in, that, deep in the conviction that you have assurance of salvation. That's how you know your salvation is real. Here's finally, not only does it have a future aspect of our salvation that we have something to look forward to. Our present suffering, there is a point to it. That God is actually using that to secure for us assurance that we are in his kingdom. But finally, Peter tells us this, there an aspect of our salvation of the past, that our salvation is built upon past people, 
surpass people's uh, sacrifice and obedience. You are here today. I am here today to have the privilege of worshiping God is because somebody else in the past obeyed God, trusted in God, and shared Christ with you. And it's not just the person who shared Christ with you, but long before you even were born, God had orchestrated for you to be saved. Look at verse 10. Talking about the salvation, here's Peter said, concerning this salvation, the salvation that you and I share in Christ, there are three groups of people that have done work of, uh, that, have put, that have obeyed God, that has sacrificed us on behalf of us so that we can have salvation. Here's the first group. The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person in time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. The first group that we see is this. Prophets of long in the past, the people that you read about here in the first part of this book, two-thirds of the book in the, before the New Testament. Those per prophet, prophets, most of us, when we think of prophets, they're predicting the future. They're predicting not just the future. They're really predicting when the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. And Peter tells us for many of them, they have no idea what's going on. It is not a good life to be a prophet, let me tell you. First, a prophet, Jesus said, is not loved by their own people. And when you're a prophet in the Old Testament time, you do some crazy things. For example, Hosea had to marry a prostitute. And after she left him for the first time, she, he's supposed to take her back. That is not a good thing. Ezekiel has a line on his side for 300, I forgot how many days, 380, 390 days. Daniel, after being shipped off to be groomed to be a scholar, because of his trust in Jesus, he, had, he stopped eating good, yummy food. It is not fun to be a prophet. But yet these prophets sacrifice. Why? Because they are trying to figure out when the Messiah will come. There are hundreds of prophecies being made in the book of the Bible about the, the, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. They're doing that for who? The verse tells us. It was, verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but who? But you. The people Peter was writing to and also for you and I. So that when we read the prophets, when we every time we go to Christmas, we read these prophecies from Joel, from Isaiah, that we know our faith is real. People sacrifice their lives to show us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. So the prophets were one group. Now here's the second group. Verse 12 continues. Not only the prophets did that, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Prophets laid the groundwork of the prophecy of Christ, and now somebody else actually opened their mouth and obeyed God enough to share the good news to you. Like, imagine if that person shared the gospel to you, you accepted Christ, someone did not share that gospel to you. I think of my own youth pastor, if he was too chicken out that day, figuring out I was too busy playing basketball, he didn't want to obey God and said, well, let's just ben, let Ben play basketball some more. I'll talk to him later. If he did not do that, what would happen to me? I don't know. Maybe someone else will share. Maybe I won't make it. I don't know. But because of his obedience and sacrifice, he shared the gospel with me. And today, I am the recipient of that salvation. Let me ask you a question. When you know that God has called you to share the gospel with somebody else, are you being that person who is willing to obey so that somebody else 
can receive the gospel. We are here today because somebody else paved the way for us. Are you willing to do the same for somebody else? Or are you going to pawn that off to somebody? Oh, well, let Ben do that. Let Rachel do that. Let Nathan do that. Let Jojo do that. When God has laid on your heart to share with someone, are you going to be obedient? Are you going to make a sacrifice? Are you going to be willing to endure the trials, even people making fun of you and sharing the gospel, so that somebody else can resolve in that? Here's the last one. The end of the verse says this. Through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, the last people who, who, who laid the groundwork for us is things into which angels long to look. I don't think there's any surprise that when Jesus talked about in Luke chapter 15, when the angels of heaven rejoice over one sinner into repentance. Angels are longing to see lost to be found. The blind to be healed. Those who live in darkness to find light in Jesus. That's what the angels long, yearn, wish, hoping, orchestrating, all because for our salvation. And if the prophets, the people who share the gospel with his angels, all longing for that, my question for all of us is this, does your salvation actually propel you to do that for somebody else? Like, does your light, when you receive the light of Jesus, are you going to share that light with somebody else, or just going to keep it to yourself? I want to end on this reading in verse 3 for us again. And I want you, as I read it, I want you to have that picture of that girl that I showed you in the video earlier. What kind of response do you have to your salvation? Is this gift of salvation actually cause you to tremble? to worship, to be in all of Jesus, or it is just one of many good things that you have. You can use with it, but you can do without it. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for this time. Thank you for your word revealing to us what we have already received from you. But Lord, I pray that you open our eyes. To see, help in our hearts to, to feel this salvation. Lord, we confess so often this salvation are just words. These salvation are just uh, uh, thoughts, are just ideas, but they're not truth and reality in our lives. So, God, I pray you will chisel all those callous away from our hearts. Help us to feel your salvation once more, not just emotionally, but spiritually, that your spirit will awaken our souls. Lord, I pray, if there's any hardened heart out here, Lord, would you melt away that? Would you break away those things so that we can feel renewed once again? And for those among us who don't know you, who don't have that salvation, God, I pray that you'll cause hunger in their life. That you'll cause them to want Jesus. Because without him, 
our life will be nothing. So Lord, be with us as we respond to you in both giving and respond to you in both singing. Remind us once again how deep your love is for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.